I want to read further in Luke's Gospel, the first, first chapter. Uh, we will move ahead to verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father. What would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, would you now make known your salvation and the remission of our sins through the proclamation of your gospel. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The best movies always have a great soundtrack, don't they? That soundtrack helps carry the story along. Broadway musicals alternate between telling the story and singing the story. It seems like stories and songs always go together. Stories need songs, and songs help tell the story. And so it is in Luke's Gospel. Luke is telling us the story of Jesus' birth, but the key characters keep breaking out in song. Uh, it's as if Luke has written a Christmas musical. You've got all these key characters who keep bursting out in song. Mary and Zacharias, the angels and Simeon. Every key event in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel is celebrated musically. And just as a couple weeks ago we looked at Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, so today we want to look at Zechariah's song. But of course we've got to tell the story of Zacharias as well to go with the song. So it's Zechariah's story and song. 
Let's start in verse 5. You'll note how Luke in chapter 1 begins giving us the story of Zacharias. Then he breaks in and gives us the story of Mary. And then he returns to Zacharias. And so it's like you sort of have a sandwich of the story about Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist wrapped around the Annunciation to Mary uh, that she will have a son. So picking up in verse 5 of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that this took place in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, any Jew in the first century would have choked on those words. Those words would have gotten stuck in the throat. Uh, Herod was a despicable tyrant. And if Herod is on the throne in Israel, if Herod is reigning over Judea, then things are not as they should be. Something is wrong in Israel. Something is wrong with the world. A Herod on the throne, rather than a David, means that Israel is in some sense still in exile, still under the curse. You've got a son of Herod rather than a son of David ruling. And yet there is a righteous remnant in Israel. We meet part of that righteous remnant here in the same verse. You have this unrighteous king Herod and a righteous priest named Zacharias. Zacharias is married to a woman named Elizabeth, who is also of the house of Aaron, uh, the priestly tribe. Verse 6 tells us Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord, blameless. What a beautiful description of their character and their way of life. Of course, this doesn't mean that they were sinless. Obviously, that's not the case. But they were faithful. They were covenant Keepers, They were mature believers. They walked with the Lord. And of course, when they sinned, they confessed it and they moved on in repentance, trying to do better. Uh, these are faithful believers, Zacharias and Elizabeth. But we find they are also childless. Now, we've just been told that they're blameless. So their barrenness was not punishment for some sin. Uh, it was simply a trial that God in His providence had assigned to them, a trial that God in His providence called them to endure. And so for all these years, they have had to deal with the reproach and the difficulty of barrenness. And of course, this makes us think of other barren couples in Scripture, especially older couples like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, many generations before, all the way back in First Chronicles, King David had divided up the priesthood into 24 divisions, and these different divisions of the priesthood would take turns rotating through which uh, division had the privilege of serving in the temple. And lots would be cast within each division to see which priest from that particular division on this particular occasion would get to enter into the holy place and perform services there. And so as Luke tells this story, as it unfolds, we find that finally the lot has fallen on Zacharias. He's an old man, apparently has never had this opportunity before, but finally it happens. And so he gets to go into the temple to burn incense before the altar. He has been waiting his whole life for this, and now it happens. This would have been the greatest moment in his life, where he finally gets to fulfill his priesthood, his priestly vocation. Going into the holy place, Zacharias certainly would have understood, would have been like going into heaven. He knew in entering into the holy place, he was entering into God's very presence. The temple was something of a model of heaven on earth. It was where heaven and earth came together. It was where heaven touched down on earth. And that was especially true in the holy place and the most holy place. 
And so Zacharias will get to go into the holy place and burn incense. And so as Zacharias is offering incense, and that incense, of course, symbolized the prayers of the priest and the prayers of the people ascending to the Lord with a kind of sweet-smelling aroma along with the sacrifices, we find that the people are actually outside offering prayer themselves. They're outside the temple doing in action what Zacharias is inside the temple doing symbolically, offering up prayers to God. So Zacharias is burning incense before the Lord. And suddenly, heaven really does open up to Zacharias. And a heavenly being, an angel, the angel of the Lord, appears to him on the right side of the altar of incense, the side where the twelve loaves of showbread sit next to the lampstand. And Zacharias is terrified, uh, as people always are in Scripture when angels appear. Whenever people meet angels in Bible, they always seem full of fear. And as so often happens in Scripture, when people are terrified by the angel, the angel speaks words of comfort. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. It's as if the angel himself has carried Zacharias' prayers up to the Lord in the clouds of incense, and now the Lord is sending down his messenger, this angel, with an answer. The Lord is now answering Zacharias' prayer for a son. The angel goes on to describe what will be the nature of John's ministry. Zacharias and Elizabeth will have this son. He will be named John. And he will have a quite unique ministry. The angel goes on to describe John's ministry and his life's work. And so in verse 14, the angel says he will bring his parents and many others great joy. Apparently a joy that goes beyond the birth of just any other child. The birth of a child is always a joyous occasion. But there's going to be something special about this birth and about this Child, Verse 15, he will be a great man in the sight of the Lord. Uh, he won't drink wine or strong drink, which means he will be a Nazarite, a Nazarite for life. Uh, Nazarites, you can read about in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the law, in the book of Numbers. Nazarites were special agents of God, uh, special warriors of God. Sometimes... Uh, you have temporary Nazarites. If there was a battle and the men were summoned uh, to war, they would take a temporary Nazarite uh, vow. But there were also lifetime Nazarites, lifelong Nazarites. Nazarites were warriors given a unique mission by God. And again, you can read about this more fully. It's described in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, but one of the requirements is that the Nazarite would not drink wine. He wouldn't be filled with alcoholic spirits. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would not drink wine. Instead, he would pour his life out as a drink offering before the Lord. And it is interesting to note that other prominent lifetime Nazarites in Scripture were also miracle sons born to barren couples. Think in particular of Samuel and Samson, who were born about the same time. You can read their stories in 1 Samuel and in the book of Judges. Figures like Samson and Samuel really provide the template for the kind of work John will do. They provide a, a pattern that John and his ministry will fulfill. The angel goes on to say that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. 
It's worth noting here that the Holy Spirit can and does work in covenant children even before they're born. David says as much in Psalm 22 that uh, he knew God even in the womb. And so what's happening with John here, while certainly there are some things that are unique about it, there are other things that are common within the covenant family of God. All too often in the modern church, we have downplayed or ignored or neglected or even denied the spirituality of children. And that's a huge mistake. And I think you see why that's a mistake here. John is going to grow up with the Spirit. As he grows physically, uh, he's going to grow spiritually as well. John will grow up a believer. And that, of course, should be the norm within the covenant community. He will grow up never knowing a day when he did not possess the Spirit of God. Further, verse 17 tells us that his mission will be patterned after that of Elijah. So you see how John's ministry is going to gather together all these different threads from the Old Testament. And they're all going to be brought together in John's life and in his work. He's going to be a new Elijah. Elijah, of course, was the Old Testament prophet par excellence. Uh, the real model of what a prophet was to be. John will be another Elijah. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, of course, stood up to the Herod of his day, uh, Ahab, uh, and his wife Jezebel. John will do the same, opposing wickedness in high places, standing up to tyranny and oppression, even on the throne. But more than that, like Elijah, John will call the nation of Israel to repentance. Indeed, he will fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4, which speaks of another Elijah that is to come. It's interesting. Malachi 4 was really the last revelation that God gave to his people before going silent, uh, before going dark on his people for 400 years. The very last bit of revelation, inspired uh, prophetic revelation that God gave to his people. Malachi 4 speaks of another Elijah who will come and who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's what John will do. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of fathers and children back towards one another and preparing the way of the Lord. John is a harbinger of what is to come. He's paving the way for one who will come after him. The Lord is about to make an, an appearance. And John is going to introduce him. You know, in the old Tonight Show, there was that, uh, you know, here's Johnny. Bless the job of John to go forward and say, here's Jesus, to introduce Jesus to the nation of Israel. He's going to be rolling out the red carpet so that Jesus can come forward and present himself to Israel as the Messiah. That's the ministry of John. That's why people will rejoice in an exceedingly great way when he's born. But it's interesting, Zacharias has a hard time believing this. He won't simply take the angel's word for it. He wants a sign. He says, how shall I know that this will happen? For I am old. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel says, I am Gabriel, <laughs> as if that ought to settle it. Don't you know who I am? I am Gabriel. I am a messenger of the Lord. The name Gabriel means God is a hero or God is a strong one. God can make these things happen. And what's interesting, I think, is that uh, Gabriel is especially the angel that is associated with the Gentile empire that God set up way back in the days of Daniel. Gabriel is associated with the Gentile Empire. It's actually Michael 
who is the angel most associated with Israel. He's sort of the angel over the nation of Israel. We might have expected God to send Michael down to deliver this message to Zechariah, since this is a, a, announcing the birth of one who will be great within the nation of Israel, but it's Gabriel who is sent. Why is that? Because God is doing something that is going to impact a lot more than just the nation of Israel. God's going to do something on a global stage, and you really start to see that. Chapter 1 introduces us to Herod and his reign, but at the beginning of chapter 2, we're going to be told about Caesar, Augustus, and his reign. This is going to take place on a global stage, and so Gabriel, who is the angel associated with the Gentile empire, is the one who comes to deliver this message. And it's also interesting to note that the last time we saw Gabriel was about 500 years earlier when he appeared to Daniel and basically gave to Daniel a roadmap of coming history, the way that things would unfold on the global stage and how all that would culminate with what is now happening in the birth of John and, of course, Jesus. Gabriel had delivered to Daniel a message that basically laid out in great prophetic detail all that would come to pass over the next several centuries and how it ultimately culminate with the coming of the Messiah and the salvation he would bring. Gabriel says to Zacharias, I was sent to deliver to you these glad tidings, to, to give you this gospel. But because Zechariah has doubted, Zacharias must be chastened. He will be made mute until the child is born because he did not believe. He spoke words of doubt, so we, he, now he will not be able to speak at all. Well, the people outside marvel that Zacharias is in the temple for so long. There's clearly something unusual going on. And when he comes out from the temple, he cannot speak to them to tell them the, about the vision he has received. But sure enough, after he goes back to his home, Elizabeth conceives... And she rejoices, verse 25, she says, the Lord has dealt with me, that is, the Lord has been good to me, the Lord has dealt with her in a kindly and merciful way, and has taken away the reproach of her barrenness. Now, fast forward nine months uh, towards the end of the chapter. We're going to jump ahead nine months to the end of her pregnancy, and we're going to jump ahead to really beginning in verse 57. And now she delivers her son. And the people rejoice in this miracle child as expected, as had been foretold. And on the eighth day, he is brought forward for circumcision, which was associated also with naming the child. This is when the child enters into the people of Israel and into the new creation, as it were. Uh, it's, it's the eighth day uh, of the child's life, the day of his circumcision, the day he becomes a true and full covenant member. And the people assume he will be called by a family name. Surely he'll be called by his father's name. Surely this is going to be Zach Jr., right? That's going to be the name of the child. But the mother says, no, his name will be John. She names him according to the word of Gabriel. Well, the people are surprised by this because nobody in Zacharias' family has ever had that name before. So they want Zacharias to confirm it. After all, this is Zacharias' big chance to perpetuate his name and extend his legacy by giving his son, that he's waited for so long, a family name. But Zacharias doesn't do it. He writes on a tablet that he will be called John. The boy's name will not come from the past. The boy's name will not derive from the old family. 
because John is heralding the formation of a new family. He's pointing ahead to the future that God has promised. So his name is not drawn from the past. It's a new name to go with this new age that's dawning, this new family that will be formed. And once Zacharias confirms the naming of the boy, he finds his voice. His voice is restored. And he doesn't just find his voice so now he can speak again. He finds his prophetic voice. And he goes on to sing a hymn. He sings a spiritual song, a song we know as the Benedictus in verses 68 to 79. But before we look at the song, I want to ask you something. Think about this for a moment. Zacharias is a priest. He's of the house of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. Priests in the Old Covenant, in Old Covenant Israel, were not only responsible for burning incense and offering sacrifices at the temple, they were also pastors in the local synagogues. And so they were teachers. Zacharias is a teacher in Israel. He would gather the people every Sabbath day in his local synagogue and he would teach to them from the Word of God. He's a teacher in Israel, but now he has lost his voice. He loses his voice for nine plus months. Now what do you think a teacher would do if he went mute for that long? What would I do as a, as a teacher and preacher? What would I do if I lost my voice for nine months? What would any teacher or preacher do if he lost his voice for that long? Well, certainly you'd spend a lot of time thinking about what you were going to say when you got your voice back. You'd be spending a lot of time thinking about what your first words would be when you regained your speech. And so you'd spend a lot of time studying and meditating and reflecting and contemplating. Zacharias has got nine months to contemplate these events, to, to, to look at the events that have been foretold by Gabriel in light of biblical prophecy and to think about what their fulfillment means. He's had nine months to prepare a sermon. Actually, nine months to, perform, to, to, to prepare a sermon that's going to be sung, a sung sermon. And so the outcome of this time, all his studying and meditating and contemplating and reflecting, is this hymn that he sings at the end of Luke 1. Again, it's known to us as the Benedictus. It's the Latin for the first word of the hymn, the word blessed. What is this song about, this sung sermon of Zacharias? To put it simply, this song is about Jesus and the new exodus he will accomplish. The song's about Jesus and the new exodus. It's interesting, isn't it, that the song is not about John. Zacharias does not sing about his own son, the son that's just been born to him, the son he waited so long for. It's not about John. It's about Jesus, the one John is preparing the way for. Yes, Zacharias is celebrating the birth of his son, John, and he does address his son in this song. I imagine him holding his son in his arms as he sings this song. And in verse 76, he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. He's telling his baby child, John, the infant, what he will do. He will grow up to be a prophet of the Most High God. But Zacharias knows his son's place in the story. This is what he's learned. This is what he's contemplated over the last nine months. He knows that his son is the forerunner. 
and that his son must decrease so the one coming after him can increase. The song points beyond John to Jesus because John is going to spend his whole ministry pointing people to Jesus. Everything in this song, everything in this song celebrates and centers around Jesus and what he will accomplish. So yes, Zechariah says his son, John, will be a prophet. But what will he do as a prophet? He will go before the face of the Lord. Again, this is an echo of Isaiah 40 and also Malachi 4. It's about John preparing the way of the Lord. And the one who comes after John then will not simply be a mere man. He will in some way be the manifestation of the Lord. He will be the Lord God incarnate. The one who comes after John is in some way identified with the Lord. He's going to be the Lord incarnate. He's going to be God made flesh. It's interesting. Elizabeth also has this same insight. Uh, she actually reveals the same thing when she as a pregnant woman meets with Mary. When Mary comes to visit her, and now Mary is a, is a pregnant virgin. So you've got this old woman who's pregnant and you've got a virgin who's pregnant. You know, that, that, the, the what to expect when you're expecting book would have looked a lot different for them, okay? Uh, that's a whole different deal with these two pregnancies. But these two pregnant women get together, and you know how pregnant women love to get together and talk when, you know, when they're expecting. And so they visit together. But when Mary comes in, Elizabeth says to her, she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. She recognizes that the baby in Mary's womb will be the Lord, not only of her baby, but her own Lord. And the baby in her womb, John, leaps for joy because he's filled with the Spirit when Jesus comes close, even though Jesus is still in the womb of his mother. I mean, all kinds of stuff there that you can unpack from that about life in the womb and what God does with those lives in the womb as he's knitting them together and forming them. But it's also really interesting to see that Zacharias and Elizabeth both have this sense that their son will be the forerunner for the Lord himself. And that this other child, the one that Mary is carrying, he in some way will be the manifestation of God to Israel. He will be the Lord incarnate. Here's another way that we see that the song that Zechariah sings is not really about John, but about Jesus. In verse 69, he speaks of God raising up a horn of salvation. The horn, of course, is the strength of the animal. It's the animal's weapon, the horn. But this horn comes from the house of David, not from the house of Aaron or Levi, as John will. John will come forth from the house of Aaron. He'll be a Levite. He'll be a priest and a prophet. Okay, like his father has been a priest. He'll belong to the priestly tribe, but not the royal tribe. Zacharias' song is about one who comes from the royal tribe, one who belongs to the house of David. Zacharias belongs to the house of Levi. His son will be a Levite. But his song is celebrating a son of David, a Davidite, a Judahite, one of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. And of course, when we uh, met Mary earlier in this chapter, in Luke chapter 1, uh, we find that humanly speaking, her son will come from the house of David, that she's apparently a member of the house of David, or Joseph is. And so Jesus will be of the house of David. He'll be the horn of the house of David. That's back in Luke chapter 1, verse 27. We see that. So we know that Zacharias is singing about Jesus here, not his own son. Uh, that's obvious. Yes, Zacharias is very excited to have a son of his own. He is rejoicing in his own son, but he doesn't pin his hopes 
to his own son. He doesn't put his joy in the hands of his son. No, he trusts the one who will be born after his son, the one to whom his son will bear witness. This is a song about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Benedictus is about Jesus. But the song also shows us what Jesus will accomplish. It is a song that celebrates what Jesus is going to accomplish ahead of time. It is prophetic. It is about what this son born to Mary will do when he comes of age. And it is a song that specifically celebrates the end of the exile and the accomplishment of a new exodus. Oh, there's so many ways we could demonstrate this. I can't go into all of them, but I want to show you some of them. How, how this song, the Benedictus, is really about the new exodus that Jesus will accomplish. Remember the original exodus back in the book of Exodus? We all know that story, right? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He sent plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He provided Passover lambs. With blood on the doorposts, he parted the Red Sea so they could walk through it on dry ground, and he led them to the promised land. God did all of these things to save his people. Well, if you read through the book of Exodus and you compare it with the Benedictus, or actually if you read other accounts outside of the book of Exodus that reflect back on that great event, you will find that the Exodus vocabulary, so to speak, there, there's a cluster of words that, that sort of hang around the Exodus and are, that are used to describe it. Those words, that same Exodus vocabulary, really shapes the Benedictus. It, those same words, that same vocabulary is used in the Benedictus. So, for example, if you read about the Exodus, the original Exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, you will find it's all about the Lord visiting His people. That's a key word that's used. The Lord redeeming his people. That's a word that's used a lot. Redemption. The, the setting free of slaves. Remembering. God remembering the oath that he swore to Abraham. Remembering his people, the children of Abraham, because of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Delivering them from their enemies. In that case, Pharaoh and his army of chariots. Okay. All of those are Exodus themes that show up very early on in Zechariah's song. Visiting, redeeming, remembering, delivering. These are the key words in Zacharias' song. They're also code words for Exodus. They're words that come out of the Exodus event. See, the Exodus really had been the defining, redemptive event in Israel's history. The Exodus is what made Israel Israel. It served as a paradigm for redemption. And indeed, we can say just as Mary's song, the Magnificat, is based on Hannah's song. It's really a remake of, of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel. So Zechariah's song, in some way, is a remake of the song of Moses in Exodus 15, that song that celebrates the Exodus. But it's also drawn from later scriptures that look back to the Exodus and celebrate the Exodus as God's great redeeming event, as the paradigm of redemption. And so the Benedictus celebrates the new exodus. See, Zacharias did not believe the angel's message at first. Now he believes. And it is interesting. He is so sure 
that this new exodus will be accomplished, that he can put it all in the past tense in his song. It's as if God has already done these things. They're as good as done. They haven't happened yet. In fact, the child that's going to do these things hasn't been born yet. Mary's still pregnant. But because God has prophesied these things, Zacharias has learned his lesson. They are going to happen. God's word is as good as his deed. And just because we don't see it happening yet doesn't mean it won't. That's what Zacharias learned. If God promised it, it's going to happen. And if you don't see it, don't, you don't see it yet, don't doubt it. Celebrate it as if it's already happened because it's that sure. If God says it, it is a sure thing. That's what Zacharias has learned. But here's something else to consider. If Zechariah says there's going to be a new exodus, that means that right now in his day, Israel must in some sense still be in exile. Israel must be in slavery. And I think Zechariah believed that. I think that the faithful remnant of Israel knew that they were still in exile in some way. To really understand this, you have to know something about the history of Israel. See, after the exodus under Moses, recorded in the book of Exodus, the people came to dwell in the promised land. They had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then under Joshua's leadership, they moved into the promised land, the place where God had promised to put his name, and then they dwelled in that land, a promise, a holy people in a holy place. But generations later, they sinned. And the prophets, and even Moses had already said this, that when Israel fell into sin, when Israel fell away from God, the exodus would be reversed in exile. Uh, and so the people would lose this land of promise that they were dwelling in. The prophets said Israel is going to be driven into exile for her sin. The people are going to be conquered and enslaved and taken away from the land. The exodus is going to be reversed in exile. The people who conquered the land will themselves be conquered. They settled in the land. They're going to be scattered from it because of their sin. And depending on what dating system you use, around 586 BC, it happened. Israel went into captivity, into exile. It became known as the Babylonian exile. But through those same prophets that God threatened exile, God also promised another exodus, a new exodus, an exodus that would be so great they would forget all about that first exodus under Moses. This exodus would outdo the former exodus in all kinds of magnificent ways. And so Isaiah 11, for example, the prophet talks about God setting forth his hand a second time, a second exodus through which he will gather his scattered people and bring them back into the land and reconstitute them there. Isaiah 43, we read this morning, speaks of God performing a new exodus so great Again, that the previous exodus is remembered no more. God the Redeemer. See, God becomes known as the Redeemer in the exodus. God the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, will part the waters for His people. He will make a highway in the wilderness for His people. He will defeat their enemies. Everything He did before, He will do again, but in a grander way. That's what the prophets promised. Israel experiences an exodus when they sin, they're exiled, but the prophets say there will be another exodus, a greater exodus. 
Well, Jeremiah the prophet actually said the Babylonian exile would last 70 years. And so you might think, well, then the great exodus must happen at the end of that 70 years. And indeed, when the 70 years were up, this would be around 515 B.C., the emperor Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to their land and rebuild their temple and their city. And so under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what they did. There was a new exodus. But this new exodus came up short. It was more than a bit of a disappointment. In fact, when the old guys who had been around for Solomon's temple saw the rebuilt temple, they wept because it just didn't measure up. It was not as glorious. And so we can ask the question, was the exile over or not? And we have to say yes and no. In certain senses, it really was over but in another sense, perhaps a deeper sense, it was not. And Ezra himself acknowledges this. After the temple has been rebuilt, Ezra says, we are still slaves. That is, we are still exiles even in our own land. That promised exodus really hasn't happened in full. Nehemiah says the same thing. In Nehemiah 9, he says, we are slaves to this day. Even though they're back in the land with a rebuilt city and wall and a rebuilt temple, they're still slaves just like they had been back in Egypt in Pharaoh's day. They're exiles even in their own land. In other words, Ezra and Nehemiah acknowledged that the exile really didn't end, not fully. The curse of exile still hung over the people. You might wonder, well, what then of Jeremiah's 70 years? Well, actually, God spoke to another of his prophets at that same time, Daniel, to show Daniel that the, that the exile would in some way continue, that the new exodus was being delayed. Daniel recognizes he's living at a time when the 70 years are about to come to an end. And he's praying and confessing his sin and the sins of the people, recognizing they're not really ready to be restored to the land. And as he's praying in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel... Remember him? Gabriel shows up. Gabriel appears to Daniel in a vision. And it's a complicated vision, but the gist of it is this. Gabriel communicates to Daniel that the exile will be extended for 70 weeks of years, for 70 times 7 years, about 490 years longer in exile for the people. Now, it's hard to say exactly when that clock on the 490 years starts ticking. What's the decisive event that starts that prophetic clock ticking? But we do know, we do know this. By Zechariah's day, many Jews, it seems the, the faithful within Israel, were expecting the Messiah to appear at any moment. They were counting those years, counting them down. And they knew it's sometime right in here. Now is when we should be expect. We're going to see this with Simeon in chapter 2. He was expecting the Messiah to be born right about the time he was because he knew the prophecies of Daniel. And so what can we say? The return from the Babylonian exile under Ezra and Nehemiah was really just a shadow and a type of the greater exodus to come through the Messiah. It was a kind of false start. The reality is going to happen now. Israel's still in exile. That's why in the great Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it begins with Israel in captive, captive Israel, mourning in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel gets the theology exactly right. Israel is still in exile until the Christ appears. Matthew opens his gospel with this. Matthew makes the same point. Matthew opens with a genealogy that traces the lineage of Jesus back to his fathers in ancient Israel. But it's interesting, Matthew summarizes the genealogy this way. He says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And then 14 generations from the exile until the Christ. 14 generations from the exile until the Christ. In other words, the exile endured long after the people returned from Babylon to their land. Israel was mourning in lonely exile, in captivity, until the birth of the Son of God. When Jesus comes, now the exile will end. Now the second exodus, the true exodus, will really happen. You see how all the, the pieces of the puzzle fit together? And it's so interesting to carry on this Exodus theme a little bit further. It's all over the place in the New Testament. It's there in Galatians and in Romans and in Revelation. It's really a key theme throughout the New Testament. But just in Luke's Gospel, because that's where we are, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, before He sets His face like flint to go to Jerusalem, well, he were, well he, He's going to suffer and die. He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there He gives a preview of His resurrection glory. He shines with this radiant and resplendent glory. And who appears with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And what do they discuss? Your English translations don't help you here, but in the Greek it's really, really clear. Luke 9.31 says they began to discuss the exodus he would accomplish in Jerusalem. That's what the cross is. The cross is our exodus. That's what Jesus accomplished at the cross. The end of exile, the end of the curse, and the beginning of the blessing. The new exodus. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is our great exodus event. On the cross, Jesus endures all the plagues. The plague of darkness falls upon Him. The plague of the death of the firstborn son. It happens on the cross. He endures all of those plagues, the curse for us. He's the true Passover lamb whose blood is shed that the angel of death, the avenger of blood, might be turned Away. On the cross, He destroys the Pharaoh of sin and death. He humiliates the false gods and gives us victory. And on the cross, He guarantees our entrance into the promised land of the new creation. How does He do all this on the cross? He experiences the ultimate exile. He is exiled not just from company of his disciples, not even from the people of Israel. He experiences exile from God himself. He cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you sent me away into the far country of exile? Jesus is exiled on the cross so we can be exodused. So we can be delivered and rescued and redeemed and restored in him. He is Exiled, sent away from his father's presence so we can be exodus, so we can be restored and brought into the presence of the father. 
And this is where we see that really the theme of exile is a whole lot deeper than we may have even imagined. The real exile began way back in Genesis 3. Not in Israel's history, but in the history of Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned and then he was exiled from the Garden of Eden. And indeed the whole human race was expelled from fellowship with God. That's where the exile began. And so, where does that exile end? It ends at the cross. Because now, through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and the greater Moses, there is a new exodus, a returning to God, a restoration of fellowship. Again, on the cross, Jesus endured the curse of exile, so we might have all the blessings of exodus. That's what Zacharias is singing about. That deliverance, that exodus, Jesus will accomplish. See, Zechariah's song, Zechariah's song, like his son, points us to Jesus. Every line in this song is about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord God of Israel who is now visiting and redeeming His people. In Him we get this grand visitation and this redemption. In Jesus, God shows up to do what He's promised to do. He is the horn of salvation who comes forth from the house of David. He has come to save His people from their enemies. As the prophets foretold, He rescues us, not from simply a Pharaoh or a Herod, but from the real enemies, death and Satan and sin. He is the one in whom the mercy promised to our fathers is found. All these ancient promises of mercy God covenanted with His people, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, finding their yes and amen in Him. He is the promised seed of Abraham who fulfills the covenant. In Him, God keeps His oath. God makes good on His Word. In Him, we find the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. In Him, we find revealed the tender mercies of our God. He is the day spring from on high who gives light to those who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. That language of sitting in darkness and sitting in the shadow of death, that's how the prophet Isaiah described the exile. And Isaiah said, a light will dawn, a light will shine on those who are sitting in darkness as captives in exile. Through Jesus, light shines on the world. The light of God's love and the light of God's truth. And as Zacharias ends his song, Jesus is the one who guides our feet in the way of peace because He is our peace. He has made peace for us with God. I want you to think about this. Our world is certainly filled with Herods, is it not? Not just political Herods, tyrants who use their power in cruel and selfish and prideful ways, but other kinds of Herods in other realms of life who are prideful, who are selfish, who oppress and abuse others. How many stories of abuse have we heard in the last few months? We hear about Herods all the time. They're all around us. And we see our world all around us filled with people who are sitting in darkness, who are dwelling in darkness. They live under death's shadow. They're fearful and, and angry and anxious and depressed and lonely. These aspects of the curse and of exile touch all of us. The exile touches all of us. It touches the ones we love. But Zechariah shows us there is hope. There is a way out of the darkness and into light, out of 
exile and back to the promised land of fellowship with God. Zechariah's song shows us there is always hope. There is a light that overcomes the darkness. There is a peace that overcomes all of our cultural wars. There is a peace and a victory to be found. There is a new exodus. It's all in Jesus. Jesus has come, and because of him, history has changed course. The world is being transformed. Our lives are being transformed because of Jesus. Through Jesus, the seeds of the kingdom have been planted, and they are growing. And we might get impatient, wishing that the full harvest was now. It's not, but it is sure to come. Jesus will reap what he has sown. And he has sown the, key, the seeds of, this, of his kingdom in this world. Every day we get hit with more bad news. We're inundated with bad news constantly. You turn on the TV, you get bad news. You go surf the internet, you see more bad news. Bad news abounds. But Zacharias reminds us of the good news that abounds even more. It's, it's good news that you're not going to hear reported on Fox or on CNN. To get this good news, you've got to come to the church. This is where this good news is heralded. But this good news is news that shapes your life. It's good news you can build your whole life upon. It's the good news of a God who hears and answers prayers, even the prayers of the desperate, maybe especially the prayers of the desperate. This is a, a good news about a God who gives hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless, a God who is faithful to his people through his son, Jesus Christ, a God who overthrows all our enemies and grants us peace, a God who forgives our sins and who makes his salvation known. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Blessed One, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer. Look, if you don't have Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what else you have. You're going to lack peace and joy and fulfillment. Your life is empty. But if you do have Jesus Christ, it does not matter what is taken from you. Your health, your wealth, it doesn't matter what you lose. Because in Jesus... You have a peace and a joy and a life that cannot be lost. You will be filled with love and glory forever. Let his love and his glory fill you up even now. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ, the blessed one, the Lord God of Israel, who has come to us and fulfilled your plan, visiting us and redeeming us. Make your salvation known to us in our own hearts and minds and through, uh, through us. Make his salvation known in all the earth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.